it's probably time we formalize a strategy on how to talk to our kids about socialism. We'll do that. Also, Robert O'Rourke has joined the presidential race, but we will start with a college admissions scandal. We'll do that and a lot more on today's Corey Truax Show. I indeed have many thoughts on what's happening with this college admissions scandal. I guess I'm a week behind because that story broke. I guess it was late last week, right before my show actually aired. So I want to get caught up on that piece of news. Robert O'Rourke has joined the presidential race, and I think he's probably the most interesting of candidates on the Democratic side. I have several thoughts about what could be shaping up for 2020 in the political world there. I'm starting to look at this Venezuela news more deeply about what's happening there. It's really tragic what's happening in Venezuela. And there is something instructive that comes out of it regarding how we talk about economic systems to the generation behind us, our kids and grandkids and the young folks that are in our orbit of influence. So I want to talk about that as well. I had two things over the last two weeks that I deeply dis- uh, excuse me, agreed with the president on. I know a lot of you like it when I do that, so I'll give you two of those issues. And then if we have time at the end, I want to give you a review of Captain Marvel. Now this uh, number one movie, that's three weeks in a row, I think it is, for Captain Marvel. And uh, I saw, saw I also saw a comedy show here recently I wanted to tell you about, so hopefully we'll get to that by the end. So that is the table set before us. We will dive into it in just a moment. But first, my name is Corey Truax. We are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. I am also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, South Carolina. We are right on Highway 123 in Greenville. You are cordially invited to Beachwood Church Sunday mornings, 1030. We would be glad to have you there. If you're listening on Christian Talk 660, 92.9 FM live, thank you for listening there on Saturday mornings. For those of you listening on all of the different podcasting apps, I am grateful that you do. Here we go. I'm sure you have all heard by now. There was a scandal that gathered together 50 very privileged people, 50 people with lots of money, uh, CEOs of companies, former actresses, of course, Lori Laughlin of Full House fame, apparently also in a lot of Hallmark movies, from what I understand. And then uh, Felicity Huffman, who was on a really raunchy show called Desperate Housewives, I believe, on ABC. So some names you've heard, some names you haven't heard, but generally the facts of the case are we have a bunch of wealthy people who wanted to ensure or knowing their student would not get into, a, their their young son or daughter would not get into a university of choice, used a company out of California to grease the wheels. They were paying in between. Some of it was, I saw one as low as $10,000. I saw one as high as $500,000. But people paying a lot of money to this really one guy who would bribe the right people. Uh, whether that be folks at test centers to change scores or change answers on an SAT or ACT that a student got wrong. Sometimes it was a coach to designate a student as an athlete for a college because if you don't know this, at a lot of the, the bigger places and more, uh, let's go with more, uh, more prestigious places, once someone's been designated as an athlete for, uh, for recruitment, the minimum requirements for a GPA out of high school or a minimum requirement for an SAT or ACT goes down. It's a lot of different strategies here, but this is what took place. So very rich people have access to the funds, want to ensure that little Sally, little Johnny get into the university of choice. They are paying a person to make that happen. And it happened at places you might expect. Uh, Some of the Ivy leagues, I think I saw Yale and Princeton both in that list, Uh, but then places that are competitive, but certainly shouldn't be 
too hard to get into. Places like Southern California and Wake Forest. These are some of those other universities. Okay, so that's the facts of the case and some of the people involved. And those folks have been indicted. Some, I doubt anyone's going to jail. I would imagine they'll find a way to everyone just pay some kind of massive fine. It's very rare that people go to jail for these things or prison for these things. And I'm, I got to tell you, I'm kind of okay with that. This this kind of violation is essentially a victimless crime. The only victim of this would have been students who would have otherwise gotten in, otherwise gotten into Southern California or gotten into Wake Forest or gotten into the other, one of those universities. But what, those students likely got in somewhere else and went somewhere else. So it's almost, it's almost a victimless crime. So there's got to be some kind of punishment. I would imagine it, it'll end up being some kind of fine. That's the story. But as is the case on my show, we're always looking for the deeper idea. Outside of the facts of the case, what is being revealed about a deeper issue? And this college admissions scandal has revealed a deeper issue, a deeper truth that we need to explore. So this comes from me from this free market capitalist conservative limited government perspective. It comes from an idea of Christian ethics perspective, but also, if you know me, my day job is in higher education. I work in the university system. I specifically work in admissions in the office that admits and denies students. And so, I have a unique perspective on this. Here is what the college admissions scandal has revealed. It has exposed the higher education system for what it is. For whatever reason, there is culturally in the West, certainly in the United States of America, there is a veneer of prestige around the four-year universities. That these are special places with unique talents and abilities to educate. There is a veneer, even like a mystery around them. I see that. Even at a place like North Greenville University, which not doesn't necessarily have the brand name, that's, that's where I work, you see high school students who are sophomores or juniors come on that campus, and you can tell they're nervous. They've got they've got some butterflies about being on a college campus simply because it's a college campus. Nothing else is true. It's just there's something about college. And so there's this veneer of prestige that people have. And what the scandal has done is made us rethink, I think, uh, properly, what is college? What is it to all the different people involved, and what's its real use? Should it have that veneer of prestige on it? And so, a couple thoughts. So, starting here. We need to recognize that what college was even 50 years ago, it's not that anymore. Let me tell you what college is. It is gigantic business. For uh, I don't even mind saying this of a Christian college where I work. A Christian university can be more than a business, and it should be more than a business. But listen, I'm not sorry to say it can't be less than one. You can't be less than a business because you do have to stay in the black. You have to be a good steward of that which God has given you, the the funding that you have and the resources that you have. So it can't be less than a business, but it can be more. But for college generally, for all the different people involved, it's not what we thought it was. You know, we think it's a place where you'll get an excellent education and learn very specific skills and deep thinking and the ability to think through problems so that you can go out and make a living. It does, it does some of that sometimes, but to the people involved, the different players on a college campus, it is different. For example, for the administrators of most colleges, it's not about those things. It's about the financial health of the university. 
It's about profit making. It's a it's about enrollment. It's you, and guys, I'm not even sorry that it has to be. You can't get to the high-minded things until you've done the normal-minded things. You can get to the high-minded things of changing the lives of young people and changing the culture around us. Well, you can't worry about that until you've actually made some money, until you're actually a, you're solvent. And when you get to the big boy universities, the, the big brand names, that's what administrators are concerned about. They're just concerned about how much money are we swimming in for parents that send kids off. This is one of my big pet peeves. What we find in this scandal is that there is... For the parent, it's it's not necessarily about the educational quality. It's about the prestige of their own self. They just want to be able to say to other parents, this is where I'm sending my kid. My student got into Wake Forest. They're going to Wake Forest University. Mine's going to Southern California. Yeah, mine made it to the Ivy Leagues. They're there at Yale. They just want to be able to bring it up at a cocktail party. When they walk back into the office, back onto the set, when they walk in to do business on Monday morning in August and everyone's kids have gone off to somewhere and someone asks, hey, well, your daughter was a senior. Where'd she, where'd she go? Oh, you know, she's off at UCLA. Not necessarily about educational quality, not about the development of the young person into adult, but just putting on the prestige of the university, just having the credential socially to add to someone else. So administrators see college as the business to make a profit. Parents see it as a way to signal to their friends that they are successful and they've been good parents and their kids are well-adjusted. Then you got students who at large see it as one of two things, or maybe a mixture of the two. They see it as a, as credentialing, just knowing I may or may not learn anything, but I know that if I'm going to apply for a lot of jobs, that just says I need a four-year college degree, so I have to have the credential on my resume to go out and make a living. And let me tell you another truth. There's a one big chunk of students that see this as that four-year sowing of the wild oats. They just see college as this four years where I'm going to transition from adolescence to adulthood, and that transition is going to include a lot of bad decisions where I try a lot of things and make a lot of mistakes, and I'll come out being a more true version of myself. It's a a four-year, unbelievably expensive journey of self-actualization and self-identity. So administrators see the college as a place to make money. The parents see it as a way to signal their own virtue and worth as a parent. The students see it as some kind of adventure to go on. And then let's not forget that there's a big chunk of faculty, especially at the secular schools, secular colleges, that see this as a way to indoctrinate. To see this, to see they see the university as a way to change the next generation into philosophies that have failed across time and failed across the planet but to indoctrinate kids into whatever garbage that they believe and have been taught themselves. And so you have all these ingredients, the administrators, the faculty, the student, the parents, they see college as all of these other things. You know what? No one actually sees it as. A place to learn anything. Where you go to class and learn a skill. You go to class and learn how to think through things. You know, college, you you have... Uh, the way it should be, and the way it sort of used to be, and some places still think of it this way, but there were the majors like engineering, or you can think about computer science, software engineering. You you really were going to college to learn a particular set of skills. Like you were learning uh, how to do a trade almost. And then, or, or you were prepping for your trade school. So you were pre-law, you were pre-med, uh, you were in business or accounting or marketing because you were going on to business school. So you were prepping for an even more specialized training, or you were thinking about getting into the academy. 
And so the idea of doing a history or philosophy or English was the idea that you're going to stay in education, you're going to stay in maybe even in higher education. And the idea there is that we're going to advance your ability to think through things. We're going to take this mind that might be simplistic and be and make sure that you're able to to break complex things down into more simplistic things and think through the complexity of life. But now it's real that the, these four people who think about colleges, administrators, faculty, students, and parents, they have seen college as something different altogether. And this college admission scandal has revealed that. And so what do we do with it? Let me take one minute here and just say this. Uh, fix all of our thinking. For, so for the administrators, again, you got to stay in the black, but the, the university cannot be only a place to make everybody some money. For faculty... Your, your job is not to make a student in your own image. Your job is not to change a student's thinking into what you find to be socially acceptable. Your job is to educate the student in the field that they are pursuing or to develop the patterns of thinking that are healthy. Where there are simplistic, where there are immature patterns of thinking, it is teaching the ways in which we can gather information, analyze information, and then be critical thinkers to the data that we collect and seeking out truth in the world through new patterns of thinking. To the student, it's recognizing you are not going for fun. This is way too expensive for you to go find yourself. Go find yourself for free somewhere else. And you know, actually this, if you want to find yourself, don't go to college. Get a job, make some money, and go on whatever adventure you want. To the student, recognize you are here to learn because college should have an end. There's a there's an end to the means. The means is the education of the college. The end is you being an independent, educated, well-adjusted adult at 22 or 23, not defer- not deferring your adulthood on into your, your mid-20s and late-20s and early-30s, but to be graduating as a well-adjusted, educated adult ready to go out and live an independent life. And my final one is to the parent. Parents are often actually the ones that most discourage me. In this state, I'm about to be a jerk to a bunch of people, but fine. We all know I'm not all that adverse to being a jerk. There is a bunch. There are a bunch of people in the state that have such an emotional attachment to the two big universities, Clemson University and South Carolina, that this is what they pursue for no other reason except the social attachment to it. God knows if they actually know what's happening on that campus. If we actually know what's going on with the, the even the ethical, the social education of our of our students even if the education's inequality it's just that's we love the orange place we love the garnet place it even supplants for some people their attachment to what would what should have been a church or some kind of other organization it becomes the church of that family it's the religion that they follow and so they just send their kid off like bottom line here there's some great place great people at Clemson in South Carolina but here's some bottom line truth that I've seen some from Christian families or at least purportedly Christian families they got a kid who barely gets into Clemson. They're about to go spend a gajillion dollars on a student who has no idea what they want to do. But, man, they get to go to the football games. And that's really what I want for my student. They get to go to Death Valley. They get to go to Williams Price. And they get to live that, that life. And we can all say we sent our kid to Clemson or South Carolina or wherever it is in your state. For the parent, uh, from what this college admissions scandal has revealed, be a discerning parent recognize that this, these dollars you're about to spend or your family's about to borrow, it needs to be for the actual quality of the education and where it ends and not however it makes you feel about yourself as a parent and what you can brag about to your friends. When we return, 
I want to get into Beto O'Rourke and his significance in the coming presidential campaign. I also want to talk about Venezuela. A whole lot I want to do on the show today. We will get started on it when we return for the remainder of the Corey Act show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Connect to it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Look for me, Corey Truax. You'll find me there. You can also find more content at CoreyTruax.com. Go out onto the Facebook page, the Corey Truax Facebook fan page. You can send me the friend request on the normal page, or you can just like the page, or both. Both is good. That'd be very generous of you if you would be so willing and share the show on your own social media like many of you do, and I'm grateful for it when you do so. Now to some politics. Beto O'Rourke, or as I call him Robert O'Rourke, because it's absurd that this very, very Anglo-Saxon white guy uses a Hispanic nickname. His name is Robert. He grew up in El Paso, El Paso to a very privileged family. Um, dad was a county judge. Uh, like he, he grew up in, the, in a powerful family's home in El Paso. But because he was in El Paso, it was politically expedient and socially expedient to sound Hispanic. And if your name is Roberto and you're in a Hispanic area, your nickname might be Beto. And so he went by Beto. It's a very uh, what a very pandering thing to do, uh, a very cynical thing to do. And so I do my best not to call him Beto, just call him Robert O'Rourke. So he was the congressman from the El Paso area. He lost to Ted Cruz in the 2018, yeah, 2018 midterms when he ran for Senate. He recently declared he was running for president. If you go back to a previous episode of mine where I handicapped the Democratic field and who was most likely to become the nominee, I said he was most likely to become the nominee, that he checked enough boxes in the the coalition of the Democratic Party to come through as the nominee. I, I mean, we... I still see a very much a route for Kamala Harris to get there and Bernie Sanders to get there. Uh, this is going to be a knockdown, dragout fight uh, in that Democratic primary with all... I mean, I think we're getting towards 15... I think it is 15 candidates now. And I think they're going to end up being more than 20 uh, actually technically, like formally throw their hat in the ring. So Robert O'Rourke is running. I said in that previous episode, he is very likely to get the the nomination. So I do want to talk about him really quickly. So first is the Democratic reaction. It is very clear that the other Democrats in the race agree with me. They all agree that he is the threat because they came out swinging. All their oppo research went to their media friends really quickly. So here was some of it. Like they immediately went back to the DUIs. Uh, Beto O'Rourke, Robert O'Rourke has had a couple driving under the influence violations. Some of the attacks are really dumb. They come from the right, but also from Democrats. Like, one of the attacks has been, well, you know, he was like in a punk rock band for a lot of his adult life, and then he had the DUIs. He was just this useless person playing in bands and drinking too much, and then, you know, got his life together and became a congressman. Uh, what I think they mis- they misapply or misunderstand is that that's very relatable. If that's one of the things Americans like, and they do, for whatever reason, Americans like relatableness. They like to relate to their leaders. I have no interest in relating to my leaders. I don't want to be buddies with them. I don't want them to live like I've lived. I don't care about how they live. I know that I'm unique in that way. I only care what you believe and how your character comports itself to what you believe. Do you believe the right things? Do you behave in a way that actually aligns to what you say you believe? Okay, I'm good. I don't care if you listen to Rachmaninoff on the weekends and you don't like Marvel movies. 
I couldn't care less. If you're a, you don't like football and you think soccer's more fun, okay, that's fine. Do you believe the right things and does your behavior comport itself to the things you say you believe? That's how I judge people, but I know that's not how Americans work with their politicians. And so Beto O'Rourke has this upbringing that actually is, in some ways, is going to help him be relatable. And he's very good at that. You know, he, his background isn't that. He grew up way more wealthy and way more privileged than any of us ever did. But he comes across as a guy that you might just want to go have some good time with. You know, he's kind of fun. And then the thing they attack him on is, you know, he was in a band. He drank too much and he skateboards. And there's a big chunk of America that goes, oh, you mean he was an idiot in his 20s and 30s and then got his life together? That sounds like me. Like, there's a huge chunk of America that thinks through that. He was wasting his time. And he he kind of got, and they're actually inspired maybe by the fact that he got his life together, ran for Congress and all that. And so that was another one. So they attacked the DUIs, that he wasted some time in his life. And then he did really write a fairly disturbing story about someone, like a, like a uh, what do they call that? Like a short story, a novella, something like that. That included someone running over some kids, so it's it's a disturbing thing. But uh, you got you got to let art be art. You have to let novels be novels. And this has happened before. Um, you know, Ber- Bernie Sanders wrote. And what I mean by this has happened before, this has happened to other politicians. There is literature out there that Bernie Sanders wrote that a woman's most intimate fantasy is to be basically gang raped. That's what he said. He wrote that in his younger years that that's a woman's fantasy. He wrote, then it was, oh yeah, Jim Webb. Uh, If you don't remember Jim Webb, he was Democratic senator from Virginia. He ran for president back in 2012. Nope, 2016. Against Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders as well. He wrote some really gross, explicit stuff about adult men and young boys in a novel that he wrote. And bottom line is when you wrote, when you write fiction, you sometimes you write about things that are like, some of our most important novels in history include a lot of disturbing things. And so, that was the next thing. They brought up that big story. And none of it seems to be hurting him too bad. So here you have Robert O'Rourke, a very charismatic personality with a story that I think a lot of Americans will relate to, and he's a Democrat who doesn't seem crazy. Bernie Sanders seems crazy. Kamala Harris often seems crazy, and she's trying to act crazier. Elizabeth Warren seems like she's... She doesn't know what's going on. She might be the most intellectual, the smartest of the group, but she seems clueless when she's in interview settings and on stage and all that. He has a real route to the nomination, and I think he he and Joe Biden, to me, are your biggest threat to the president. So if you're you're really interested in Donald Trump winning re-election, you should be rooting against Robert O'Rourke and Joe Biden. That's probably the two people he would have the most trouble with. And I want to, I want to drill down on that a little bit. I said this on, uh, I guess that was last Monday. I said that to a, a person who's also, he more into politics than I am. I'm barely into it anymore. And this person's a, a Trump, like a real big Trump person, and they were very much uh, putting aside the idea that Robert O'Rourke would be any kind of real challenge for the president. Let's do some real talk, okay? If you are dedicated, if you're interested in the President of the United States winning re-election, you need to be honest with yourself. Trump has never, he's never really been challenged in a campaign setting, all right? He's very weak as a politician. I'm not saying his record is weak. I'm not saying these four years haven't been good and that he has now a record to run on. I am telling you that 
I'm hearing from some Trump people, well, he'll do to Beto what he did to Hillary. He'll do to Beto what he did to all those Republicans because, you know, you just can't stop the Trump train. All right. You can talk about him like he's like he's your hero and he's a superhero and he can do whatever he wants. Or you can grow up and you can see what really happened. I mean, really quick, let's just get the history here. Guys, Donald Trump won the primary with, in total, less than 30% of the votes. I know it was a huge, it was a huge field, but, you know, it, it is the Trump people that tell me you know, how, how terrible Ted, Ted Cruz is such a loser, and so is John Kasich and Marco Rubio. Oh, are they? They're such losers that Donald Trump couldn't get more than 30% of the total votes in the primary? He couldn't even put them away? That's how terrible they are? And then, guys, he, he ran against the most unpopular politician in the last hundred years with Hillary Clinton. He has been weak. Like I, 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 I like the stat. I think it's important to give the stat out. In actual real votes, Mitt Romney got more votes in Michigan than Donald Trump did. Hear that again. Mitt Romney got more votes than Donald Trump in Michigan. Mitt Romney lost the state in 2012. Donald Trump won the state in 2016. That's not strength from Donald Trump. That's how weak his opponent was. When he won that primary with 30% of the vote, he, he didn't dominate there. And here's, here's, what, here's what we've seen thus far. He ran into a pretty good situation where all of his opponents have been terrible. Marco Rubio is probably the most talented opponent that he's had and if it would have been a one-on-one Marco Rubio versus Trump primary, maybe Rubio beats him, but everything was so spread out, there was room for something like Trump to come through that primary. And then he ran against, again, the worst politician we've ever seen. Like, Hillary Clinton is not just corrupt and evil. She's also untalented, uninspiring, and uncharismatic. If, if Robert O'Rourke wins this nomination, he will be the most talented politician that Donald Trump's ever had to face in an election I don't know how well he'll do. This time around, you can't just label him. You Whatever label he's going to put on Beto O'Rourke, and I'm sure we're going to get nicknames soon. There will be No Brain Beto or something like that. Like There will be a hashtag. He'll call him a name. It won't be enough. This is just more of my political nerdiness. George W. Bush increased his vote number, his total number of votes in 2000 versus 2004, is he picked up like 8 million votes. 8 million people that didn't vote for him in 2000 voted for him in 2004. He needed that uptick to beat John Kerry. Donald Trump will need the same thing. He's going to need new voters to show up. I don't think his strategy right now is going to work for that, and Beto is his biggest problem. Beto is, or, or it might be Joe Biden if he wins the nomination. If it ends up being a Biden-Beto ticket, it could be trouble for the president. Okay, so that's what I wanted to get to with Beto O'Rourke. He's in the race. Uh, there's a big chance he doesn't win the nomination. If he happens to win the nomination, he's the person most likely to beat the president. But this is how I wanted to finish off the discussion. Where, where we're shaping up here with this Democratic primary is going to help the president because it's going to put the insanity of that party on display for the rest of America to see. What I'm seeing shape up on left-wing media, uh, so for example, if you have any interest, 
Uh, the biggest liberal podcast out there is called Pod Save America. This is three guys from the Obama administration who now have a liberal podcast. And they get together and talk politics. It's it's purely political and it's purely from a left-wing perspective. I listen to it ah, once a week maybe. I'll give them about 30 minutes just to see what's going on out there. The way I've seen it shape up for them is the argument is socialism versus intersectionality. I've told you about intersectionality before. This is the politics of victimhood. So the uh, the black Muslim has more intersectionality points than the white Christian gay person because the white Christian male only has one one point of intersectionality. They're a gay person, so they only have the gay oppression point. But if you are a black lesbian woman, okay, I guess lesbian means woman, but you have the, you're a black person oppression, you're a woman oppression, and you're a gay person oppression. So we should listen to you the most. You have the most the most points of intersectionality. You have the most op- oppression points, and so you win. This is a giant part portion of the Democratic Party. They're very much into intersectionality. And so because victim status and oppression, uh, the the uh, the address addressing oppression, or they, they would call it justice, is such a fundamental part of who they are, a lot of the other stuff, uh, let's call it uh, healthcare policy and tax policy and taxing the rich, and these are not things they think about as much. They really want to see action in the legal world to try to, I don't know, fix those things, fix the oppressions. And really, those are philosophical. They're not necessarily about getting a policy out of Congress and through a White House and signed. Those are those are about social things, social constructs, uh, that you have, the, you have a person just saying the right things, who checks all the right boxes, not necessarily pushing for any particular policies. And so you have this thing, the intersectionality wing of the left that is coalescing, and they're tending to coalesce around a Kamala Harris. And then there's there's another part of the Democratic Party that's a, that is radical, but it's a little more old school, and they're coalescing around Bernie Sanders. Because they, they have very little interest in their intersectionality. They're just for getting this government as big as it can and in control as many things as possible. They are the, we want 90% tax rates for people who make any, any decent income. We want we want Medicare for all. We want the government to control all of health care, take over the banks, take over the oil companies, take over the telecom companies, the internet companies. Like, we just want the government running everything. And so you're going to have these discussions on the left of what matters more. Are we more interested in intersectionality and pursuing these, the basically the oppression Olympics, or are we interested in having a candidate that's going to push for specific policies uh, to broaden government reach and government power. The thing that happens there, to me, the, the, the way this could work out for Beto O'Rourke, is a, a running up the middle. So if you have a, like Donald Trump got, if you have a fractured field, a bunch of people who are very much into intersectionality and a bunch of people who are very much into the socialism thing, there might be enough fracturing that Beto O'Rourke could take a little bit of the intersectionality people, a little bit of the socialism people, a, a little bit of the blue dog Democrat, uh, and he's doing really well with millennials. Young people just like this guy on a personal level that he might be able to squeak out the primary like Trump did with like 30% of the total votes but become the nominee. And again, if he becomes the nominee, 
I think it'd be very hard to stop him. All right, uh, we only have a couple minutes in this segment left, so I'm going to hold this discussion on how to talk to our kids about socialism. Let me do this one because it'll be faster. Uh, we were talking about presidential politics. There were two things that the president said recently that I totally agreed with, and so I wanted to highlight them. One was this. He tweeted that Ann Coulter was crazy. I think he called her batty. Ann Coulter is crazy. She's the person who wrote In Trump We Trust, you know, replaced God with Trump. She's the one that talks about Trump. Like uh, like she said, I don't care if he performs abortions in the Oval Office as long as he builds that wall. She is just such an insane person on immigration policy. Uh, she's now attacking the president over not having built the wall. He called her crazy, uh, to which I say, yep, thanks, Mr. President. She's crazy. And then second, he said he wanted to make daylight savings time permanent. I don't care if you make daylight saving time a daylight savings time permanent, or you make standard time permanent. I don't care. But this has to stop. This madness has to stop. It is 2019. We have electricity everywhere, and we're still running a policy like we're a bunch of farmers in an agrarian economy needing to control the clocks to make sure we're maximizing daylight. I don't know if anyone's heard, but we got bulbs and electricity, even LEDs. Guys, there are even giant tractors that have giant lights on them. We don't need to keep switching the clocks, and I'm particularly frustrated by it because I value my sleep. It's very important to my regimen and my my health routine. And so, uh, to the president, yes, do that. Listen, I don't. I said it on on Facebook here recently. I was just joking. I'll I'll vote for anybody who will stop this changing of the clocks. And so people were joking around with me on Facebook about what I would do for that. And I said, I will wear a Make America Great Again hat. I will put on one of those Obama change t-shirts. I don't care what I have to do. Just stop changing the clocks. It's killing me. Okay, when we return, we will review Captain Marvel, review a comedy show I went to here recently. And first, when we come back, how to talk to our kids about socialism. We'll do all that when we come back for the Corey Truax Show. Welcome in for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. Here's how I want to start closing us down today. First, a preamble. Someone I knew, or still know, brought up to me in the last few months that all my social media bios, you can, all of you on social media, you have your own bio. You know, on Facebook, it's just a little box right below your name, I think it is, where you just, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself. On Instagram, it's right below your name. On all of my bios I had in there that I was a free market capitalist. Like I would mention, you know, Christian and I'm of reformed theology and you're just listing things about yourself. You tell us about yourself, but I always mentioned free market capitalist. And this person asked, like, why is that significant enough to you to list it? And I don't, uh, I'm not sorry about it. This actually is a big core of of who I am philosophically. I took it out of the bio because I just wanted to add some other things. But we, we really should in the West have some genuine appreciation for the economic system of capitalism. We have so much cool stuff, guys. When you think about how easy the world is now versus what it was 150 years ago, like let's just take that. Let's say someone who lived, let's go 1880. If you brought them to 2019 Greenville, South Carolina, they would have thought they died and went to heaven. With the different standard of living we have, just a hundred years from a hundred and few, just more, more, just more than a century ago. I've talked about a lot of these, and some of it's the the fundamental stuff. The fact that we can't run out of food, 
Guys, we have so much food, we throw it all out. Like, that used to not be a thing. There are still a lot of people on the planet that wonder what they're going to eat from meal to meal, not even day to day, but meal to meal. What are we going to eat or are we going to be able to? And that's just the natural state of being. They don't actually know any other way. You know who also used to be like that? Americans. Before capitalism roared to life, an engine of ingenuity and profits and what it led to just from food. We, all the best ideas that have made our life so good have been born out of capitalist economies. Our air conditioners, and our Netflix accounts, and our iPhones, and Uber. All the stuff that have made life so convenient have been birthed out of capitalist societies because it encourages ingenuity, it encourages thrift, it encourages, in this economic system, this idea that you can keep what you earn, that there is protection for your ideas, that the rule of law will protect your the, the fruit of your labor. This is something I'm not like I'm not ashamed to say. I am a free market capitalist and I am one not because I'm a greedy person, but because it's been so good for people. Even Bono, like a rock star who's fairly liberal, Bono will say when he speaks at serious places, he'll talk about how capitalism has been the greatest force for human flourishing in the last two centuries. He does a lot of work in Africa, and he's seen it happen. When capitalist policy is put in place, people do better. They get more healthy. Life life expectancies expand. The amount of uh, diseases that that are are widespread diminish. Healthcare gets better. Your entertainment choices constantly uh, increase increase the amount of t- the amount of hours you have to work just to pay for a place to live and to feed yourself go down like it's been so good for people i love this system it's been awesome for human flourishing and so we have come to a spot in american culture where we have forgotten that and we have major politicians whether it be alexandria ocasio cortez or bernie sanders or Kamala Harris, whoever it is, that refuse to say the words they're capitalists because they're not. They're not capitalists. They actually view capitalism as negative. They see other systems of economic organization as being better for people, and they're objectively wrong, but we see them saying that, and the people on our, or the people in, on our soil in our country that have glommed on to that idea the most have been young people. That word, socialism, used to be a dirty word. Something the folks on the left would say, how dare you? How dare you say I'm a socialist? Of course we're capitalists. We just think we need more regulation on the capitalist system. But of course we're capitalists. Like Hillary Clinton said that in 2016. Hillary Clinton said, yes, I'm a capitalist. We just need more regulation. But there's a group of people coming up behind me, and even some of my age, even people in their early 30s, but folks in their 20s and their teens that look at socialism and find some attraction to it. And so as we are going to have these discussions, especially in this upcoming election with younger people, I started thinking through, how do we inculcate a younger generation with the value of capitalism over the socialist system? One way is going to be our tone. One way is that we cannot be the older folks who look at the younger folks and do the, you just don't know. If you only knew what we what we knew, yeah, when you grow up, you'll understand. If We can't do that. Young people don't listen to that. That's not, that's not going to be a, a strategy we can use. Or if you just treat people like they're stupid. Like you only have that position because you're objectively dumb. Uh, like I just actually had this discussion with 
uh, was that online? Yeah, I, this was an online discussion where I said the words. One of the thing, one of the things we can't do is treat people who would disagree with us like they're stupid or evil. We just have to treat them like they have a different set of values. They grew up a little differently than we did. They they have a different understanding of things. And I actually had someone say back to me, "No, they're stupid and evil." And so we got to say that like their their ideas are dumb, or and when they're not dumb, they're being evil. Oh boy, that's not gonna work. Has anyone else not? I mean, has anyone read ways to win friends and influence people? This used to be a book people read coming up. Maybe we should all go back to that. You know, one way that you don't win friends and influence people, or the one of the ways that will make sure you don't win friends and influence people, call them evil and stupid. Like that's not that's not how it's going to work. And so, if we're going to inculcate in the generation behind us. This great idea of free market capitalism that has led to way more good than it has bad. Our tone cannot be demeaning. Our tone cannot be patronizing, like we're just so much smarter. But there are arguments to make, and here they are. Number one, we have been given a tragedy in the world, but in one way, a gift in this argumentation. And that is the the country of Venezuela. If you're not paying attention to Venezuela right now, you really should. What's happening there is tragic. It's something we should have a lot of sadness around. This previously the the most wealthy nation in Latin America with all kinds of great resources. Their oil wealth was incredible, better oil wealth than the United States had. Through socialist governance. We just see so much human suffering. Most of the country hasn't had electricity in weeks. There's consequences to not having electricity, guys. Most of our medical equipment, even in their country, runs off electricity, and we've seen people dying in hospitals in pretty big numbers because we just can't keep the machines running there in Venezuela. You, If you haven't seen the stories, you need to, that they are so hungry that they are so mismanaged in their food production and they're having so much mismanagement in their trade policy and bringing food in from other countries. There are people shooting dogs in the streets just to eat. We are seeing what socialism does, and we have in the past. We saw it throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s in Eastern Europe. We saw a lot of these same issues. The problem we have is that the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's and Bernie Sanders say, oh no, that's not socialism. Socialism is the thing that you see over in Norway, in Sweden. You know, it was the, I think it was Finland. If I'm wrong about Finland, then it's Norway. But the prime minister of one of those two countries actually tweeted out, Bernie Sanders needs to quit calling us a socialist country. We're not socialist. And they're right. Actually, Norway, Finland, those countries often have more capitalist policies than we do when it comes to business regulation, and it's certainly their business tax environment. Not necessarily personal taxes, but their business tax environment. In those ways, they tend to even be more capitalist. They just have a giant social safety net. So we have this social safety net that is uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, some unemployment benefits. I know people get mad about uh, EBT and food stamp stuff. It's actually a really small chunk of our budget is that one little line item. But here's the social safety net stuff. Theirs is bigger. Their uh, social safety net is is larger. And then they do pay for it. So they pay for it through... uh, The person in those countries who has like six... Yeah, it's like a $60,000 equivalent 
uh, income. They pay over 50% of that in taxes. And the people in Norway and Sweden, Finland seem to be okay with it. Their argument is, well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting taxed at 50%, so my $60,000 income is now a $30,000 income. But my kids will go to college. I'm basically prepaying for college. I'm prepaying for all my health care. I'm prepaying for all this stuff. And so it's fine that my income is so low and my I got taxed that much. Uh, I could have bought more stuff, but I'm going to have less because I prepay for all these other things. So they point to that as socialist, but it's not. It's just a giant welfare state that's being run, that's being fueled by a fairly capitalist system. But, but we should also bring up to, the, to those young folks that say, well, that sounds great. Well, let's have a capitalist system that just has a much larger social safety net. Okay, but there's one thing we do all, we, we will need to realize that we're going to lose. This is a discussion we had on the show recently, that when we talk about policy, we need to be adult enough, we need to be mature enough to indicate that there are costs to our benefit. That we say, well, here's what I want. Here's the lower tax rate that I want. Now, there's going to be a cost to that, but here's the benefit. I think the benefit outweighs the cost. So for the, for the young person who says, oh, well, we want that version of socialism. We want the Nordic states version of socialism. Okay, fine. Let me make, let me make sure you know what the cost is. Here's the cost. Innovation. You know what those countries haven't given the world? Much of anything. Go find the last time a major pharmaceutical achievement came out of one of those countries. Go find the last invention in regards to surgery and medical care came out of one of those countries. Go, go to those countries and find out which the last time one of them created an idea like global position position satellites, developed an app to tell us how to get wherever we're going, built an iPhone, found a way to turn silicon into computer chips and only make them faster and faster and faster. All of that stuff happens here. Some of it happens in Japan. Most of that happens here because we, in our system of free market capitalism, we can still do innovation. Now, this is one of the reasons why a lot of our stuff costs so much. We're actually paying in our prices for the innovation of things. I'll give you an example of this. When like 4K TVs or HD TVs first were invented, they're being sold here in the United States. I found one, uh, an old advertisement for one, for $8,000. It was a 40-inch for $8,000 for an HD TV. This is early 2000s. Guys, you can go to Walmart right now and get that TV for 300 bucks because we paid for it. It was really the wealthy in America who paid the high prices, the exorbitantly high prices for the product, and then it became more widely distributed to the, to the middle class and upper middle class people. And then it goes overseas, and we developed it. We paid for the cost of it. That's why it costs a little more over here, but then they get to benefit from it on the back end. That's what happens with medicines. It's one of the reasons we pay so much for medicine here, because we were the country that came up with it. And so our people pay more, so those companies that developed it get their get their their uh, their profit off what they did, and then it gets exported to other countries. That idea, that chemical, and it helps other people. And so, okay, to the to your young person, it's fine. We can become a Nordic level socialist country. I need you to know the things you'll lose. No one's coming up with Netflix that you love so much. No one's coming up with Hulu. No one's coming up with Amazon Prime. No, it wasn't a Western European company, uh, country, uh, Western European country that gave us Amazon. That is birthed from capitalism, and so you need to know. We will lose out on that. America has been the engine of all this cool stuff that we have, and that will go away. 
when you start becoming one of those countries. So that's it. That's what what I want, wanted to get to you. On as the popularity of socialism grows, let's point people towards Venezuela as one of the examples of the ways it goes poorly, and recognize even when you think it's going well, like in one of those countries in the northern part of Europe, yeah, that's fine. Uh, it's going okay, but it, it's going to cost us a great deal if we do that to ourselves. And the final couple minutes we have here, I wanted to get to a quick um, review of something. Actually, you know what? Well, maybe I'll do that later because I had another important thought. I was going to review Captain Marvel, but you know what? Just go see it. It was worth seeing. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, I'm grateful, put down the idea of raising the voting age. This was a discussion happening uh, in Congress from some of the new members. I guess that was last week. And said, no, we don't want to lower the voting age to 16. Uh, so I, just, I had one quick word I wanted to say on this. Of course we shouldn't do that. There was a very funny hashtag going on on Twitter of people saying, like, well, of course we shouldn't. Like One of them was, when I was 16, I like suction cupped a glass to my face and gave myself a bruise that lasted for three weeks. No, we shouldn't vote at 16. Well, of course we shouldn't. I'm at that spot where I'm ready to raise the voting age. I don't know, to like 30. 35? I know that I couldn't even vote at 35. But we we have a bunch of clueless people who don't know what's going on in the world voting. Now, granted, there's exceptions. There's 25-year-olds and 20-year-olds, and hey, there's 15- and 16-year-olds that know enough to do the right thing and know what's going on in voting. But that's not at large. And equally, I know some folks at 55 and 60 who have no idea what they're doing and they should stop voting. Like, they, they've not done the work to, to earn to earn that vote. Uh, but of course we shouldn't lower the age. If we were ever going to have a test for it, I don't know how to do the test. There's actually kind of a dark history on tests uh, for voting. But I don't know. If we uh, let, let me design the test, I just want to check your civic knowledge. Not even current events. Just like, do you know how government works? Like, do you, Can you name the three? Like that's just, just like that one. Can you name the three branches of government? If not, yeah, you should probably walk away. Probably don't need your vote. Like if you... Can you name, can you define bicameral legislature? Do you know how many houses there are in our legislature? Oh, you don't? You know what? We don't need you to vote. Go do something else instead. Uh, So anyway, it looks like that's not happening. We've run all the time. We're going to come back and have a sports segment like we do, uh, like we typically do. We'll start that back next week. Please share the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you can tell someone about it. Please do. We'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.